Well, good afternoon, everyone. What a joyful privilege it is to gather with you all here in Southern Montgomery County, and what a privilege it is to do so around God's Word today. And so let me just, again, as John did, wish a happy Mother's Day to everyone here today who is a mother. Seriously, thank you for all that you do, uh, the way that you give of yourselves and steward the, the weighty task of not just raising uh, a person, but raising a soul. Uh, what a weighty responsibility that is. So again, thank you so much. As you grab your Bibles, which you'll need today, I want to do a quick pulse check. Uh, how many of you here have ever seen any of the Avengers movies? Show of hands. Okay, so the majority of the room. And how many of you have not seen them, uh, but like intend to, just for the sake of spoiler? Okay, so nobody. There we go. Uh, perfect. But if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, or if you have an idea of what I'm talking about, between the years 2008 and 2019, so that's 11 years, Marvel Studios, Studios released 19 high-end, high-budget, individual superhero uh, superhero films, superhero movies, all in route to this epic, groundbreaking, blockbuster climax of a film, which raked in almost $3 billion at the box office, right? And so big-time superheroes like Iron Man, Captain America, The Hulk, Black Panther, all got their own movies, and then alongside dozens others, came together for a finale known as Avengers Endgame. And to either briefly inform you or remind you, one of the, the, the summaries of the movie is this. It goes, after the devastating events of Avengers Infinity War, it's a movie in 2018, the universe is in ruins due to the, the effort of an evil villain who has eliminated half of Earth's population. With the help of remaining allies, the Avengers must assemble once more in order to undo his actions and undo the chaos to the universe no matter what consequences may be in store, and no matter who they face. So in other words, the, the, the goal of the Avengers, their end game is to basically go back in time, and as they track back through it, make necessary observations and adjustments to ensure a different outcome. And so naturally what ends up ensuing in this movie is you find these superheroes actually going back into what we know as prior installments, previous movies, only from different angles and perspectives. So a lot looks familiar because they've been there before. Just at this point, they now have a bigger picture to work with as they seek to achieve their objective, as they seek to achieve their goal, as they seek to achieve their end game. And so today, as we consider the book of First Thessalonians Church as a whole, we're going to be taking kind of a similar route, only rather than us navigating back through the entire book in hopes of changing something like the Avengers, we're going to be going back through it in hopes of securing something. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So just as they needed to go back into individual parts in order to better understand and impact the whole, so anytime we get to the end of the book, we would do well to track back through its parts to better understand its end and its whole. You see, we likewise have a world-altering, better yet, eternity-altering endgame. And so naturally, we should ask, what then is that 
for Christians. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and read it. In verse 11 it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now get this. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Church, this is our end game, amen? To increase and abound in love and to be found blameless in holiness before God on the final day. And so then how are we to get there? How is this supposed to actually happen? What does it look like? Well, I've got seven brief points for you today as we track back through 1 Thessalonians. And then we'll land on a final couple of thoughts on the verses at the end as our seven points. So seven points to being found in, in, in persevering, to be blameless on the final day. To persevere in faith to the end, to securing this eternity-altering reality. You ready? Seven points. Number one, trust God's power. How do we get there? Number one, trust God's power. Number two, trust God's messengers. Trust God's messengers. Number three, trust God's word. Number four, trust God's will. Number five, trust God's son. Number six, trust God's goodness. And number seven, trust God's whole, uh, faithfulness. So I'll say it one more time. Number one, trust God's power. Number two, trust God's messengers. Number three, trust God's word. Number four, trust God's will. Number five, trust God's son. Number six, trust God's goodness. And number seven, trust God's faithfulness. And so as we continue, my prayer is that we would truly understand why the Holy Spirit saw fit to write the book of 1 Thessalonians through Paul and how he intended it for it to be instructive for us today that we might hide God's word in our heart and rest in it in the rest of our lives, all right? May we truly see these seven things as like, Think of almost like pieces of spiritual armor that are fundamentally necessary and essential to surviving the battle of this life, this world, in order to make it to the end. So number one, trust God's power. And that's going to be all of chapter one. So if you want to turn back to chapter one with it's going to be verse one through verse 10. Trust God's power. Look specifically at verse four. So don't worry, we're not going to read everything. But if you look specifically at verse 4, there we read, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So to set the stage, remember the Apostle Paul planted this church in a metroport area, now as we know as northern Greece, and Paul made some enemies very quickly, so some, some staunch opponents to the gospel, and he was run out of town in a matter of a few weeks. 
And the religious opponents of that city at large quickly turned their guns of their displeasure on the newly planted Thessalonian church. So they're essentially on their own now, or so it seems. And and as the Apostle Paul opens up this letter in chapter one, right out of the gate, he uses it as a grounds uh, uh, to ground them in the power of God and in the truth of the gospel, as one would only expect they would need in the face of such opposition. Essentially, remember where you came from. Remember how God's power overcame your greatest obstacle, church. I'm talking to you. And that greatest obstacle is you and saved you to a life everlasting. Never forget where you came from. Look with me at verse 9. So chapter 1, verse 9, it says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so in keeping in mind our end game, what's Paul's strategy for encouraging this church, for encouraging us to hold on to the end? And that is trust God's power. Trust in God's power which saved you. Trust God's power revealed in the beautiful truth, in the breaking news of the gospel that the creator God of all things became a man and he dwelt among us and he lived perfectly and died brutally and bore the weight of divine wrath against all of, our son, uh, all of our sin that his perfect obedience might be counted as ours by turning from our sin and putting our faith in him in his sacrifice. So breaking news, church, God saves sinners. You can live forever with him. The power of God can turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh and you can be forgiven. If you look at verse three there, you notice a theme set out really for the rest of this letter in the form of faith, hope, and love. It says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith that rests in the past, love that labors in the present, and hope that eagerly and anticipates what is to come. And you know what, church? The power of God in the regeneration of our souls causes all of these, causes our faith, causes our hope, causes our love. It gives substance to it. The power of of God displayed on the cross, the power of God in ensuring our sanctification, and the power of God delivering us finally into his eternal kingdom forever. Trust in the power of God. You know, when I preached this passage back in August of last year, that's chapter one, our church, just like the Thessalonian church, was only a few weeks old. And you know what I said at that point? Here's a direct quote from August 9th, 2020. Friends, I know we find ourselves in a strange time these days, especially in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. We've worked so hard to establish a church in Montgomery County only to find ourselves back here on Capitol Hill for the time being. It can feel hard, even a little awkward, like how are we going to invite our friends to church? How are we going to reach this community? How are we going to move forward when 
We're meeting 40 minutes away. Well, let me give you this charge. Don't be discouraged. Church, look where we are right now. All right, look where we are right now. I continued, I said, you know something, there are God's people out in Montgomery County right this moment who need to be gathered into churches. The window is getting closer each day for Christ's return and that door is closing. Having been rescued ourselves, may we now peer through that doorway from the side of safety and call on all people to come to him. Come to him for hope. Come to him for rest. Come to him for life. Church, the power of God saved you who in your life right now is in need of the same salvation. Paul recounts their own conversion and he tells them, you are the real thing. You are truly believers that they might hold firm and continue and do as chapter one, verse eight says, if you look down, it says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not need say anything. How are we to be presented in holiness as we run the race to make it to the end? The next time you feel hopeless, the next time you feel burned out, the next time you can't believe you fell into that same sin once again, well, trust in God's regenerating and keeping power. So number one, trust God's power. Number two, trust God's messengers. In chapter two, verse one, through chapter 2, verse 12, uh, that's where we get that. And if you want to look specifically at verse 2, we read, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel— so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So friends, in this section, Paul appears to be, again, defending himself against a ton of negative press he's receiving from those who hate him and his message. You see his defensiveness there in the, in the language in chapter two. For example, verse two, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Middle of verse four, so we speak not to please man. Verse five, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Verse six, nor did we seek glory from people, and so on and so forth. So the question we have to answer here is, why does Paul seem so, to care so much about defending himself, about defending his ministry? Is it simply to protect his reputation, as so many of us are, are guilty of doing each and every day? But I don't think so. I don't think Paul just wants to have a good name for himself. So in order to answer the question of why Paul spends so much time defending himself here, we have to ask yet again, what's the purpose for his book? What's his aim and desire in, in, in this letter, church? And it says we saw in, in chapter 3, verse 11 to 13, it's essentially that they would keep their faith to the end. He wants to see them stay strong in the faith and increase in love for one another as they hope to the end. So then what's the question between Paul's reputation, uh, the, I'm sorry, the connection between Paul's reputation and the church persevering to the end? Uh, it, it's that if Paul is discredited, if himself is discredited, well then his message would therefore be discredited. 
And if the message, the truth of the gospel is discredited, well, then there's absolutely no reason to accept or believe it at all. And friends, the sobering reality of this letter and the message of the whole New Testament and the message of the Bible is that if you reject God, if you give up on the gospel, you will not be delivered from the wrath to come. As we saw in chapter one, verse 10, you will not be found righteous on the final day. So if you're here today, think of, think of like, is yourself standing at the foot of a dam, okay? And when that dam opens up, what's gonna happen? You're gonna be absolutely crushed. And that dam that's holding that up is God's mercy. It's God's mercy on you in the form of the mercy he offers through the good news of the gospel. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, or perhaps you're a non-Christian, or perhaps you may think yourself a Christian, but deep down, you want none of Christ. You want all of this world. Allow me to tell you, to gently warn you, well, that dam will break. In fact, it's about to break, imminently. And the crushing weight of God's wrath against all things evil will fall on you and will wipe you away in an instant if you do not have Christ there to shield you from it. And the way in which he shields you, the way in which he's there with you is by faith. The way to be found standing in the end is by faith in the good news of the gospel, the message of the New Testament, the message that Paul so desperately sought to protect at all costs, even by the costly sacrifice and constant suffering in his own life. And it's where Paul could say confidently in in chapter two, verse eight, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So since the gospel message is what is able to save and deliver us on the final day, and since the message is delivered by God's messengers, well then, church, our responsibility is we must be on the lookout for the marks of God's true servants, of God's true messengers, his true stewards of the gospel if we're gonna persevere to the end. I said it last time, the Lord has always provided shepherds for his sheep. And so again, our church Our job, church, is to discern and follow his true shepherds. And according to this passage, they are the ones who are gentle, verse 7. Affectionate and sacrificial, verse 8. Holy, verse 10. And encouraging, verse 12, as they steward the gospel. Brothers and sisters, may we trust God's messengers to bring and embody the glorious truth that God holds out to us, amen? All right, so how are we to increase and abound in love for one another and for 
us to be found blameless and holy on the final day. Number one, trust God's power. Number two, trust God's messengers. And now number three, trust God's word. Trust God's word. That's chapter two, verse 13 through chapter three, verse 13. Look down with me at chapter two, verse 13, actually. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of truth, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, when I preached this a few months ago, I illustrated the example of where our minds naturally go when we haven't heard from someone in a long time, when we haven't heard from someone in in what seems like forever. Because in the immediate text, the Thessalonians hadn't heard from Paul in ages, so naturally they would wonder, well, what's going on? Is this guy a fraud? But the truth is, many of us know all too well that we tend to do the exact same thing with God. Am I right? God, I haven't heard from you in a while. God, I don't feel the same way I used to. At that youth camp. At that worship conference. During that one sermon or during that one particular quiet time. After that one amazing blessing or in the midst of that really hard time. The the, the Thessalonians dealt with in all of chapter three. So naturally we say, God, are you still there? Do you still love me? Do you actually exist? And you know what, church? He hasn't gone anywhere. He is just as near to you as he's always been. And all you have to do is pick up his word and read it and talk to him about it. You'll remember I exhorted you, the next time you feel you don't have any time or desire to read your Bible, well, do yourself a favor, even if you just have a minute or two, open it, read it for 30 seconds, reflect on it for 30 seconds, and then just talk to God about it for 30 seconds. Friends, this is God's word. We won't make it to the end apart from it. And as you read God's word, what you'll find, whether you're in Genesis or Romans or Hosea or Hebrews or Kings, you'll read about the, basically the exact kind of sins you'll see today. The context might be different. The circumstances won't exactly match. But sure enough, the human heart doesn't change. There's nothing new under the sun, right? The human heart must be reborn. It's, it's only by the power of God's word that that happens, So I'll give you an example. On the Gospel Coalition's website just a week or two ago, a guy named Hunter Beaumont, he's a pastor in in Denver, he wrote in an article titled, Deconstruct Your Culture, Not Your Faith. He said the following, Cultures pull a sneaky move. They pretend they don't exist. They present themselves as just the way things are. But The reality is that culture is always present and it's always playing a role in our experience of faith. Tension in our faith is too often caused by a culture shift and not by Christianity itself. Your task is not to find a unicorn of culture-free Christianity. Rather, it's to learn and live out your faith in your current culture. That's so good, church. As we tragically witness Others, you know, publicly fall away from the faith. Let me charge you as you day by day witness the culture around us erode and disintegrate. 
deconstruct that culture. Its logic is non-existent. Its message is a fraud. And its freedom is a mirage. And as you align yourself more and more with God's word, and as your intake of it increases and increases cover to cover, and as your trust for it and as a result in him becomes stronger and stronger, you will be satisfied. You will be steadfast and you will endure. Trust God's word. And what we find revealed in God's word is God's will. So number four, trust God's will. That's chapter four, verses one through 12. We read in chapter four, verse three, if you want to go ahead and turn there, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Honor. If you skip down to verse 7, it says, For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. So you want to know God's will for your life, God's calling on your life. But I have to say it again, it doesn't have to be this mystical labyrinth of superstition like you're a locksmith. And if you get things just right, then bam, you're in God's will. You've unlocked God's calling on your life. Friends, that's not a biblical or a Christian idea whatsoever. And the reason this text on God's will seems so straightforward is because it is. Essentially, it comes down to not figuring out what God's will for your life is, but rather, are you going to walk in it or not? Will you live in God's will or will you live in Satan's will? Will you look more like the world or like Christ? On social media, at work, or on your Zoom calls, in your private conversations, in your comfort zones, at home, where it seems okay for us to sin? Will you look more like the world or like Christ? Again, a great temperature check for whether or not you're living in God's will and living out his calling for your life is not, are you going to move here or are you going to move there? Are you reading this book or are you reading that book? Are you going to marry this person or are you going to marry that person? But rather, are you denying yourself on a daily basis and are you extending yourself for the sake of the gospel? Are you walking upward in your daily life or are you walking downward? Because friends, God's will in this life is that you might treasure holiness as he is holy, that you might increase in it to the final day where you might be presented finally holy and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus, amen? It's that the emphasis and value you assign to increasing in love towards others And in holiness towards God might be a key indicator of you living in and living out God's will for your life. In verse 8, we read, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So church, as we look and long to love one another as the means for making it to the end, may we be able to truly and joyfully say, I trust God's will for my life. Number five, trust God's son. That's chapter four, verse 13 through chapter five, verse 10. Trust God's son. We read in chapter four, verse 16. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So for everyone here today, you know, it's as I said earlier on when I was describing that, that idea of that dam breaking and how the straw that will break the camel's back, as the saying goes, or in other words, the event that will unleash the end is the return of Jesus Christ when he will descend from heaven to gather his own and separate those who are is from those who are not. And so for everyone here today, this is the last countdown. This is a final warning. Don't be taken off guard. Will you turn from your sin or not? Because he is coming soon, whether you're ready or not. It's like as my daughter would say when she plays hide and seek, ready or not, here I come. Because the reality is that there is coming a day and there is coming a division when Christ will separate. It's like when you do, when you do laundry, right? This is clean, this is dirty, this is clean, this is dirty, and your eternal destination will be vacuum sealed. What was it our, our Lord said at the end of the entire Bible? You remember? If you don't, go ahead and turn there with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. It's like right before the index of the glossary. We're going to read verse 11 through 17. Friends, do not let these words escape you. Verse 11 says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so do you believe these words? Do you believe God's son? Will you trust God's son that he will do what he says he will do? Or are we going to keep living like it's some distant fairy tale? Friends, because of the price Jesus paid on the cross, As verse 17 says there in Revelation, all that is required is that you come. Come to the Lord Jesus. He will be faithful to cleanse you and sanctify you and save you forever. Will you come to him today is the question. Trust God's son. Take him at his word because he's coming soon. So number five, trust God's son. Number six, Trust God's goodness. 
Trust God's goodness. Chapter 5, verse 11 through verse 22. We read specifically, if you want to look at verses 15 through 22, it says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So this one is relatively straightforward, but if you look closely here, you'll notice like a mini fancy word, chiastic structure here. And what I mean by that is a chiasm is a literary device used to emphasize a main point in a text at the heart of the text. It's often used throughout scripture. You'll see it, especially in the Old Testament. And here, like I said, we have like a mini one. What you see is the beginning of text mirroring the end of the text, right? So again, we're looking for that main point in the middle. And here we go, the beginning of the text, the end of the text. Verse 15 says, see that no one repays evil for evil. Verse 22 says, abstain from every form of evil. That's mirror number one. Next, you see the second half of verse 15 says, always seek to do good to one another. And then the second half of verse 21 says, hold fast what is good. That's mirror number two. Then in verse 16, 17, and 18, we get a series of brief commands. And then in verse 19, 20, and 21, we get another series of brief commands. That's mirror number three, all sandwiched in by the previous two statements of what? What is at the heart of it all? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ah, so there's the main point. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Oh, but wait a minute, Jeremy. I thought you just said that the will of God was our holiness. Is this now saying two different things? I don't think so. In chapter four, he talks about the will of God in the context of abstaining from sexual immorality. Here in chapter five, he talks about the will of God in the context of holding fast to what is good and abstaining from what is evil. I don't think the two are opposed to one another. In fact, I think they're actually the same thing. Basically, God's will is that we would hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. And we're able to do so because at the end of the day, we can trust in God's goodness. That he will protect and preserve and reward what is good and that he will remember and punish and destroy what is evil. In fact, trusting in God's goodness is like an on-ramp or a prerequisite to being able to trust in God's will in the first place. Or in other words, because we're able to trust God's will for our lives, we can then, or because we're able to trust his goodness, we can then trust uh, his will. That he, as theologian uh, Wayne Grudem says, is the final standard of good and that all that God does is and is is worthy of approval. Or as John Calvin wrote on God's goodness, he says, our Lord generously offers himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, promising us through him all happiness in place of our misery, all fullness in place of our poverty, and opening up to us in him all his heavenly treasures and riches that our faith may look holy to his precious son, our expectation be wholly directed to him, and our hope rest entirely in him. Church, 
How are we to persevere in the midst of life's challenges and tragedies and disappointments? How are we to increase in love for one another and and, and to all in the face of what sometimes seems like coldness or, or cruelty or even evil? How are we to keep the faith to the end? Well, we can trust in God's goodness. So to recap, our first six of seven points, trust in God's power, trust God's messengers, trust God's word, trust God's will, trust God's son, and number six, trust God's goodness, and finally, number seven, our official text for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 through 28, trust God's faithfulness. Let's read it together. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter written to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So do you see as we we track through this book how if you're holding almost like a theological telescope up and adjusting the lenses, it slowly becomes to begin, or it slowly begins to come in more and more in focus. And then when we get to this final text, it's like, ah, here we are. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's aim, his hope for this church in this letter, we saw in chapter three, and we see it again here at the end. It's again that we would be found, uh, it's that we would stay strong in faith, increase in love, and hope together for the coming of the Lord Jesus. So faith, hope, and love. Remember, faith that rests in the past, love that labors in the present, and hope that longs and looks towards a future with Christ. But notice what's most important here is what Paul includes here that is actually absent in chapter 3, verse 13. It's his very next words in chapter 5, verse 24. This this verse is like the anchor of this entire book. Think of it as like the linchpin that holds the whole system together. And if you pull that out, the whole thing falls apart. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's like the mic drop moment of 1 Thessalonians, brothers and sisters. Now, a couple of brief notes on this text specifically. One being the idea in verse 23 of some kind of difference, potentially, of body and soul and spirit. The other is being the degree of prescription around whatever this thing called the holy kiss is here. So really quickly, Regarding the first idea of body versus soul versus spirit, the big picture idea we need to get is that Paul is praying that God would be faithful to sanctify them through and through, in other words. That he would utterly cleanse them and set them apart for his own glory. And then this idea of completeness leads into this phrase, whole spirit and soul and body. This this phrase, again, here implies a totality from which no part is hidden. So there's nothing hidden, church. There's no sin done in quote-unquote moderation. 
There's no part of you that secretly desires the things of this world above the glories to be revealed in heaven in eternity with Christ. I don't think we need to get too hung up on the specific verbiage of body, soul, and spirit, specifically if the, the soul and spirit are two things or one thing. I will say that generally the New Testament describes us as having two parts, not three. That is that which is material and that which is immaterial. Soul and spirit are almost always used synonymously throughout scripture. But let's say for a minute here, if Paul were advocating for like a three-part makeup of our humanness, as actually many of the early church fathers did believe, it's the idea that the spirit is like this ruling faculty in men and women through which they hold communion with the unseen world. The soul is the seat of all of the impulses and affections in the center of personality. And while the body links this, like the material world with the immaterial world. But in the words of, of English theologian John Stott, he says, we should not press Paul's statement here into a precise scientific or theological statement of human nature. The phrase surely has a rhetorical element to it we can't ignore, similar to loving the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So in short, it's likely this is just a rhetorical statement meant to describe the wholeness of a man or woman, and Paul's prayer is that wholeness would be sanctified and purified. Like I said, nothing hidden. Now on the idea of this holy kiss, you may sometimes hear Christians reference it jokingly. Uh, I don't think this is prescriptive across time and culture, but I do believe the main thing we are to take from this is that it's one way of essentially saying, you're very precious to me in the Lord. Or as John Piper believes, there's this eagerness to see one another and love one another in the church versus just treating one another nicely or putting up with each other. You see the difference there? But in any case, in other words, love and greet one another eagerly in the Lord. I think that's basically what it's saying. Now, assurance is one thing, but it's a whole other thing to be able to be surely assured. It's like double assurance or like God not just telling you he loves you, but showing you. Or like God not just telling you he's holy, but incarnating and proving it. It's the idea of saying you can trust that I will be faithful to you because faithfulness is who I am. You can be sure of your salvation because at the end of the day, it's not dependent upon you and your strength. It's dependent on me and my strength and my power and my means and my word and my will and my son and my goodness and my faithfulness, dear beloved. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you believe that today? To illustrate this idea, author Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which many of us read together in the heat of the pandemic, wondering how are we ever going to plant this church in Montgomery County? And again, here we are. He puts it this way. He says, the only thing required to enjoy such love is to come to him, to ask him to take us in. He does not say, whoever comes to me with sufficient contrition or whoever comes to me feeling bad enough for their sin, or whoever comes to me with redoubled efforts. 
He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Our strength of resolve is not part of the formula of retaining his goodwill. He continues, he says, when my two-year-old Benjamin begins to wade in the gentle slope of the zero-entry swimming pool near our home, he instinctively grabs hold of my hand. He holds on tight as the water gradually gets deeper. But a two-year-old's grip is not very strong. Before long, it's not him holding on to me, but me holding on to him. Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand. But if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. And so with Christ. We cling to him to be sure, but our grip is that of a two-year-old amidst the stormy waves of life. And sure enough, church, his grasp never falters. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you. Help us to trust you, not just with our lives, but in our lives. Lord, keep us to the end, we pray. Guard us. Secure us. Preserve us that we might stand together on the final day and enjoy you forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.